morning, church. Once again, please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 1. So just those two verses. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 1. Once you found your place in Scripture, please stand to your feet as we read God's Word together. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 1. This is what our God has said by His Spirit through the prophet Malachi. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray, church, before we get into this. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for sending Christ to us to be our righteousness, to be the sacrifice and the death that we so deserve, to be the resurrection and the life that we need to provide a way to be reconciled to you so that we may be with you forever. Lord, that is That is what Scripture is all about, God. You being glorified through your Son by the redeeming of fallen humanity, but also, Lord, you being glorified by um, righteously dispensing justice, Lord. Lord, for all these things display your attributes, and all your attributes are good because you are good. And so, Heavenly Father, please, by your Spirit, illuminate the text for us. For those who do not know Christ, I pray, God, as only you can do, that you would grant ears to hear, eyes to see, that you would grant hearts to believe your word, that you would give faith, you would give repentance to those who need it, and that through the new birth, they would call upon Christ to be their Savior. God, we plead for you to do that. As we sung today, God, please send your love, please send your grace on everyone, because we all need it. We're not worthy of it, we're not deserving of it, but we definitely need it. Be glorified now, be worshipped now through the preaching of your word and through the listening of it as we give you honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God's Love for Justice. This is part one, subtitled, The Messenger of the Lord. We're going through the book of Malachi, and now we get to this text, and the text is part of a bigger section, but we're just going to tackle these two verses today. God's Love for Justice, this is part one, The Messenger of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever, you probably have, if you've ever come across someone who doesn't understand God's nature, and because of that, they assume that God doesn't exist, or that he's something other than how he describes himself in Scripture. Such is often the case when it comes to the idea of evil. People get God wrong. Those who don't know God personally might have a bit of knowledge of God, and they will often try to use logic to reason through this issue of evil, And more times than not, they will end up on the wrong side or the faulty side of understanding. 
their thinking goes like this, and, and I've heard it many times before. Maybe you have too. They will say, evil exists. I mean, really bad, really nasty evil exists. Therefore, God does not exist, at least not the God of the Bible. And that's their thinking. Because the God of the Bible, according to you Christians, is loving and all-knowing and all-powerful. Therefore, if evil exists, then he must not be loving because he would do something if he could. If he's powerful enough and loving enough to do something but can't, something's wrong. Either he, one, is not loving and doesn't care, therefore Christianity is a sham, God doesn't exist because if he was loving, he would do something. Or, secondly, he's impotent. He's loving and he knows about evil, but he's powerless to do anything. Therefore, the God of the Bible doesn't exist. Case closed. Christianity is a sham. Christians are foolish. They're superstitious at best. They need God, who is a crutch to them, to get through life. And that's how many people reason, because they have a limited understanding of God. But such reasoning and thinking, it doesn't take into account that each of the attributes of God that they know of are multifaceted. There's many aspects to these attributes. God's power and his knowledge and love are way deeper than a superficial or a rudimentary understanding of those words gained from the Oxford Dictionary. Okay? Not only are those attributes of God more complex than one might first assume, but those attributes, they are also regulated by God's other attributes. His holiness. That works together with these three attributes of being all-knowing and all-powerful and loving. His patience, that's an attribute of God. His grace, his mercy, his wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to do the right thing with the knowledge that you have, making the right choices. These are all attributes of God along with his wrath. And when you take time to put all these things together, not just the first three attributes, you begin to see that such arguments against God are short-sighted, and they are minimal at best. As you add more pieces to the puzzle, you get a clearer picture that God is just while still being loving and patient towards those who commit horrific evil. And the truth is that we're all in that horrific evil category because all of our sin is against God. But he's just, he is righteous while still being loving and patient towards those who commit evil. Scripture says that he's actually giving people time to repent of their sin. He's giving people time to come towards him for salvation. And so God is just and loving and patient, all those things all at once. And he's being patient because his wrath is coming, Scripture says. That his righteous power, his desire to make sure that evil is rectified and dealt with by his power and might and wrath, there is a day coming in which he will do that, in which evildoers will no longer have the opportunity to find refuge in Christ and find protection in him. You see, the problem of evil only proves that there is a God. The problem of evil only proves that there is a God. If there is evil, then one understands that there is good. Okay, And if there is good, then there must be a good standard by which you are judging evil things. If that standard is you, and you're the ultimate good, 
Or if it's some part of creation, then that's not really a good standard because all of those things are ever-shifting and ever-changing. Okay? So to claim that evil exists validates that good exists and that there is a perfect good by which you can judge all things and that something is outside of you, outside of us, outside of creation that is ever-changing. And so to claim that evil exists just proves that, that that good exists. Let me give you an example. Let's say you, let's say you take a test at school or work or wherever, and you get 90% on a test, okay? Does that not assume that there is a standard of 100% perfection? It's, that's just simple. You're basing it off a perfect score, and you can say, oh, I was sub-perfect at 90, 85, maybe 10%. Maybe you didn't study at all. Pop quiz, okay? You're just the worst student, all right? Who knows? Well, that perfect standard is the very definition of God. That perfect standard. He is utterly holy, meaning totally set apart from sin, totally set apart from all that is evil or sinful. And if you believe that evil doesn't exist, and you try to duck that and say, well, then evil doesn't exist, then you must think that rape and murder and theft and lying and embezzlement and abuse and adultery and all other evils are okay. In which case, you don't live in this world, okay? Uh, you have a thinking that's faulty because we all inherently know that those things are wrong. You must be otherworldly if you don't, okay? Inherently, mankind knows that these things are bad and sinful. And because you know these things are evil, you end up finding yourself stuck in the Christian worldview. Everyone is somewhat stuck in the Christian worldview if they confess that there is evil in this world. without even knowing it. And so the problem in denying the God of the Bible, if that's what people do with their limited understanding of God and they reason that there is no God because there is evil, the problem in denying the God of the Bible, it really has to do with one of two things, either a lack of knowledge and who God really is, or it's just the heart that is dead set on turning to God and acknowledging the God of the Bible that they know. And ultimately, Scripture in Romans tells us that that's really the problem that evil people deny the understanding that God has given them of himself. That it's, they're, they're just, they want to rebel. They can't, they can't blame anything else. They really can't blame lack of knowledge because God has revealed himself in creation, making himself known. He's, he's putting on humanity an understanding of right and wrong, written morality and law in their hearts so that they know stealing and lying and cheating and adultery and all these things are wrong and murder. So he's given those Things to know help us know that there is a God and we can know something of him. You see, with a limited understanding of God, with a me-centered understanding of God, with a me understanding of this pers- uh, and perspective of this world and the situations that surround me, I am incapable of arriving at proper conclusions of God or what he is doing in this world. From a me standard and point of view, I can't properly understand this world and what God is doing. I need someone outside of me to inform me of what is really happening around me. I need someone with an incredible amount of knowledge to correct my thinking. And that's where God comes in. With his infinite knowledge, with his infinite wisdom, he is properly and able to make the right decisions in history. And he uses his power accordingly to see that All of our sin and evil will be accounted for. So it's not just a couple of attributes, it's all these attributes together. He's powerful enough and will deal with evil. And either the problem will be dealt with in Christ, 
through grace and salvation and forgiveness, or our evil will be dealt with in hell. But God will deal with it accordingly, mercifully or justly. And this is what he shows us in his word, to correct our crooked thinking and broken thinking. And there might be things that you wrestle with in what he shows us in his word. There are things I wrestle with too. Malachi has been the hardest book that I've ever preached through. And when you look at this, because I'm not a Hebrew scholar, when you look at this in the Hebrew, it, there's many of these passages that could arrive at it at different understandings. And so it's been very difficult. So I confess that there are things that are difficult to understand in God's word, things that are hard to reconcile. But that doesn't mean that they are irreconcilable. It just means that we need God to teach us. Malachi is going to help us with that today, brothers and sisters. This morning in Malachi, we begin to address the fourth problem that God has with Israel. They believe that God is overlooking evil. That's the problem. And that he is not just. That he is not righteous. And so they wonder where God is. Where is this God? Does he even exist? God is going to break through their minimalistic thinking and tell them otherwise. And may God help us all to see May God help us all to think like our God. Let me briefly recap the first three problems that God has with Israel. Problem number one. Problem number one is Israel doesn't believe that God loves them. Israel doesn't believe that God loves them. He proves this, that he does love them, though, by showing how they are chosen over other nations, specifically the nation of Edom. Israel was in covenant with God, in contract, in relationship with God. God chose Israel to be his people over Edom. And we saw how God chooses us for salvation, Scripture says. Now, I I have to say this. The doctrine of election is not there to make you fatalist or determinist. What I'm saying is the doctrine of election is there not to say that your choices don't matter. Did you hear that? The doctrine of election is not to say, oh, que sera, sera, what will be, will be. My choices don't matter. This is the way it's going to be. That's not what the doctrine of election is there for. The doctrine of election is there to show you how magnificent the grace of God is. God is. That's why we call them the doctrines of grace. Not the doctrines of determinism or fatalism or what you do doesn't matter. That's not what those doctrines are called. While you were dead to God and unable to respond to him, Scripture says, he called you to life so that you could respond to him. He revived your dead heart, and that's an act of love. That's an act of grace. And hopefully you see how good our God is. And that's why we sing, you are good and your love endures forever. You must also understand, listen, when it comes to the doctrine of election, that your inability to respond to the gospel, it in no way relieves you of the responsibility to believe the gospel. Let me say that again. Your inability, I can't believe the gospel, does not mean that you are therefore not responsible to believe. You are still responsible and accountable to believe the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay. We are all responsible to believe the gospel in faith and repent of our sins. That is a command from Scripture. Repent. Repent. Believe. Those are commands. Those aren't requests. They're commands. You are still accountable to believe it. You must believe it. You can't throw your hands up in the air and say, God hasn't given me a new birth, so it's his fault that I don't believe, so I'm stuck here. No, it's your fault if you don't believe. Let me explain. Because it's you who freely chooses not to believe. 
We can't fault God for our lack of desire for the gospel. And it's, it's our wicked hearts that we're enslaved to. Our wicked hearts. If you lack faith and repentance, you should ask God for it. Do you honestly think that if you genuinely want faith and repentance, do you think that God would not give you faith and repentance? Nah, I'm not going to give that to you because I don't want you to be saved. Do you think God will withhold salvation if you actually wanted him to save you? Sincerely and genuinely ask for it? Or do you genuinely not want gifts of faith and repentance so that you can tr- cannot turn to Christ? If you don't want these gifts, the problem rests with you, not with God. You can't fault him. L- let me ask you this, or let me present a situation to you. How arrogant and sinful would it be for the person who does drugs and loses their family and their home and they wind up on the streets? How, how wrong would it be for them to blame the rich person for their current demise and poverty? It's their fault that I'm here. Well, who's, whose fault is it that got them there? Their own, their own decisions. And, and it would be wrong for them to say, I'm not rich because rich people don't give to me. Doesn't that sound foolish? And you would say, no, man, it's your choices. The fact that someone with money would share kindness with you to help you, that doesn't equate to the same thing as being in poverty because rich people don't give to you and blaming them for the problem. Does that make sense? Therefore, if you are in your sin by your own choices, you cannot fault God if he decides not to help you out. It's, you're, you're the problem. But the, God gives grace and comes to us and shows kindness, just shows his grace. You are not in your condition because of God. You are in your condition because of you if you're a sinner. That God would call us to grace is just something amazing. And Israel did the same thing. They tried to blame God for their awful situation on the fact that God didn't love them, but it was they who didn't love God. And that was problem two. Israel and the priests don't love God. This is proven to them, and God shows them this. He shows them their improper sacrifices. He shows them their lack of holiness. Let me ask you, and I mentioned this before, any husband who brought a bundle of weeds to his wife to show his affection for her would be met with a swift kick in the shins, right? Well, hopefully those had steel toe boots, right, uh, on that woman. That's what that man deserves. Why would, you, why would you treat your wife like that? How dare you bring that to me? What is it that you think of me that you would bring me weeds and thorns? Such was the case of Israel. The citizens brought their nasty offerings to God and the priests, and the priests were too lazy to inspect these disgusting offerings, and they, they thought serving God was hard. Okay, And so they, the whole country offered trash to God. God was displeased with their offerings with both the Israelites and the Levites, that is, the priests and assistants. And God said that he was going to smear dung or the entrails of these nasty sacrifices on the priests, which would defile them and make them... in. Uh, incapable of serving God. They would be defiled as well, making them unfit for service. Unlike previous generations of Levites and priests who were fervently devoted to God, because we went over that, previous generations were totally devoted to God. These priests were not. They should have been teachers of God's word. They were actually called messengers of God's word, but they have utterly failed in their covenant with God. Problem three, Israel and Israelites are breaking covenant with God. They're breaking union with God and each other. How? By marrying pagan idolaters, by unjustly divorcing their wives. And we talked about this the last two weeks. 
We tackled this third problem over two sermons, and we labored to show why God loves biblical marriage so much. Why, how it points to the gospel of Jesus' union to the church, which lasts forever. There's a covenant there that never is separated. And why our human relationships on earth are meant to model that, whether you're Christians or not. All marriages are meant to model that. That's why God gave that to us, according to Ephesians um, chapter 5. And scripture tells us that God gave us marriage, and it's a mystery, and it's speaking of Christ and his church. Therefore, we don't want unions here on earth to distort the gospel picture that God gives us to help us understand how we're saved and how we're in union with Christ forever, which is why we don't promote believers and unbelievers getting married, okay? That's, that's an unbiblical marriage, right? We don't want that to happen. That's why we don't promote same-sex marriages because it distorts the picture of the gospel. That's why we wouldn't promote marriages to animals, okay? You, you, can, you can go on. That's, this is why... This is why fornication is wrong. People having sexual intimacy before they're married. Because that's not the picture of the union. You don't get blessing in eternity in life with God outside of union with him. You only get intimate blessings when you're in union. And so therefore you must be in covenant union and marriage covenant before you get those blessings. So it's it's not that there's one type of union that we're against. If you want to call it against, yeah, we're against all those things because they distort the picture of God that he's given us that helps us to know the beloved Savior's love for his church. Does that make sense? We're really pro-gospel. Okay? We're not haters of other people, and we shouldn't be. Right? We should be merciful and, and tender towards those who don't know Christ and concerned about them. Whatever their sin is, we want them to know Christ. We cannot be self-righteous and act like we've never committed sin and that we weren't once condemned to hell. That is wrong for the Christian to stand and look at someone like that. We must have concern and pity because we were once in that condition, okay? Problem four, we begin to look at today that God has with Israel. Israel believes that God loves injustice and wickedness, but they're wrong. So the next two sermons are going to tackle this fourth problem. Our first point today we see as we look at the text is we see the need for a just messenger to preach. We see the need for a just messenger to preach. Let's look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Scripture says, once again, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? That's Israel talking. The prophet saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So that's what they're accused of, saying those kinds of things. So Malachi confronts Israel with the fourth problem. He starts off by telling them that they have wearied the Lord with his words. They have exhausted God with their words. Now, this isn't to be taken literalistically in a a literalistic fashion as if God is physically run out of energy. That's not what it's saying. It's not like God needs a nap here or he needs a vacation to rest because they have exhausted him. He doesn't need a a day away in isolation. Our God is, is omnipotent and he doesn't run out of energy. Instead, God is trying to convey the idea that they have agitated him, that he is expressing his displeasure in what it is that they are saying. God's patience, in essence, is coming to an end, and he is going to take action. That's what he is saying by you have wearied him. Time has has run up for how I'm going to deal with you. I've been patient. I've been kind. I've been loving. I'm waiting, and you've wearied me. Time is up. The Israelites are in disbelief. That, God could be, that they could be irritating God. They are in total disbelief. There's no way that they could be a source of displeasure to God in their minds. So they ask, how have we wearied him? 
In what way? How is this possible? Let me just say that this is often the case with us, right? We're often in disbelief that we do anything to worry God. I mean, we're, I'm good, right? We, we, yeah, man, those people are bad. My relatives and that other brother or sister in my church, gee, not me. I mean, I do everything God wants. And, and we kind of have that attitude sometimes, okay? We're often blind to our own faults. Like King David, we need to pray, Lord, forgive my hidden faults. There are many things that we do that are simple and we might not even catch them. There are many righteous things that we're supposed to do that we just overlook. And sometimes it's just the ones that people call out that we're aware of. We need to humbly acknowledge that we all have sin in our life that we are ignorant or blind to. We don't need to wait for someone to call us out on our sin. We should be doing constant self-examination and asking God for help us to see our hidden sin. It could be an attitude. Can it, be in a, it can be in a worldview. Can it be in a way that you treat somebody? There may be something that you should be doing that you're not. There's so many different things that we need to ask God to help us to see in regards to our hidden sin. And the Israelites, they were indignant. They were self-righteous. They, had a, they, they couldn't believe that they had offended and worried God. Okay, God, wait a minute. You got us on the first three, okay? There's no way there's a fourth problem. And God's like, you're right. There's not a fourth problem. There's a, there's a fifth coming and a sixth, okay? We got several more problems to tackle. In what way have they worried God? By their words. What words? They are saying, listen, it says they are saying, not they have said. It's very important that you get that in the text. They are saying, not they have said. It's not a passing tense thing that they did. It's something that they are currently doing and it's ongoing and has not stopped. Ongoing. Not something they used to do. What is it that they are saying? They are saying everyone who, is, who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And that God delights in them. That's the first thing they say. They're saying God is looking down on evil, on the Israelites that they're committing, and he's saying, good job, Israel. I love what you're doing. I'm so pleased with the evil that you're doing. Now, we don't know exactly what this evil is and what they're committing, but if we use the context of Malachi, we can see some of the evil already. Okay? We know that Israel, uh, the people are going around saying God doesn't love God, uh, Israel. They're slandering God. They're lying about God. We see evil sacrifices are being to God. We see marriages that are being obliterated left and right by the priests and the citizens. And so it seems that there, it seems that there might be a group of people in Israel trying to remain faithful to God, but they look around and see evil, and nothing is being done about it in their land. And so they believe that God gives approval to it. If these are the kinds of people that are complaining about, listen, if that's who's complaining, people trying to maintain righteousness and are displeased with the evil in their country, then in their zeal for righteousness, they have gone too far. If, if it's people trying to maintain covenant with God, and now they're accusing God of overlooking evil, they've gone too far in their righteousness. Okay? They've gone to the point of sin. Now, where, now they are more righteous than God. That's, that's how, if, if it's a righteous group of people. Okay? In essence, they're saying, I see evil. I know right from wrong. God has lost his mind. He now sees evil and calls it good and is pleased with them. God even delights in these people who are breaking covenant with him and with each other. These people who bring corrupt sacrifices, God loves it. He says, job well done. These people, these people, if that's how this group of people is, they have a human observation in their situation. Human observation, what they need is divine revelation. 
They need God to speak to their situation so they can understand it properly because they're looking at it and totally misinterpreting it. Their assessment is wrong. It's way off base. And our interpretation of our situations must be looked at in light of God's word, in light of his message. Now, I'm not saying that whatever happens to you, you need to mystically go to your Bible and say, Lord, flip a page, speak to me. Oh, that's speaking to my situation right now. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, that's what many people do with their lives, just like they do with current events. Oh, there was a war here. That's in the Bible. And this president over in that country did this. And oh, that's in the Bible too. And then, then 10 years later, oh, that same passage, now it's about this guy. It really wasn't about that guy. We made a mistake. And uh, like, that's not what I'm saying that you should do, looking at your circumstances in light of God's word. What I'm saying is that you need to read scripture to shape your worldview, to shape your mind and outlook on life so that in general, you can see why the world is the way it is and what, what God is doing in human history to fix the evils of this world. That, that, that's what I mean, okay? The prophet Habakkuk, another minor prophet, he struggled in this way a little bit. I don't think he was sinning in the way that he was asking God or wearying the Lord. But Habakkuk looked around at the evil in Israel, and he said, he said this. It's on the screen. He said, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or I cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Why, why do you just sit and do nothing? Destruction and violence are ever before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. Man, a prophet of God dismayed at the evil around him and wondered why God was, let, God, why God was letting evil go unchecked. Let me ask, does anyone here think that they're the first person to ever ask this question of God? Have we not looked at things around us, our own families, and wondered, God, why do you let it go unchecked? Why don't you do something? Let me ask, do you think God is shaken up by any self-righteous assessment of the world? Do you think God is... Oh man, you, you got me. Uh-uh, you put me back on my heels. Nice jab. I, I fell asleep at the wheel. Do you, think, do you think that's how God thinks? Honestly, I don't think so. After Habakkuk's questioning, God tells him, he says this, he goes, listen, you don't know this, but I'm raising up the Chaldeans to punish Israel. I'm raising them up. Judgment is coming to Israel. Then Habakkuk, he doesn't like that. He has a problem with that scenario. He's like, Lord, they're worse than us. What about their evil? I'm, yeah, I complain about Israel, but you're going to use an evil people to punish us? Yes, that's what God does with Israel over and over. But God says, you, you don't worry about that. I'm going to handle them too. I got it all. I got it all figured out. You're not God, I am. I'll take care of them. It's amazing that anyone would ever believe that God tolerates and praises evil just because this is going to sting, Okay. It's amazing that anyone would ever believe that God tolerates and praises evil just because he does not condescend or acquiesce to our corrupt sense of justice and timing. We don't have impeccable timing. Have you ever been late for anything? Okay. Our timing is not right. If, aside from that. Oh, I should have jumped on that. Oh, I, you know what? I forgot about that. We are peccable 
God is impeccable. He knows what he's doing with his timing because he has all knowledge and he's infinitely wise and he knows how to account for everything and everything will get handled the way that he wants it to get handled. And so it's, it's, it's foolish of us to say that God doesn't exist or that he tolerates evil because he doesn't condescend or acquiesce to our corrupt sense of justice and our impeccable timing. And so in Malachi, we see that there's either this group that is trying to follow God, and in their frustration with evil around them, they begin to turn on God. And they too now have become sinful, and they have worried God with their words. This is often the case where we Christians can find ourselves. Or it could be, maybe that group isn't who's complaining. It could be that they're just sinful people who still have a sense of right and wrong, and they don't see God vindicating evils against them. Let me give you an analogy. The best analogy that I can think of would be like mobsters, okay? Mobsters who are upset that someone has stolen from them, and so they are indignant and angry at the injustice committed to them, which is hypocritical since they gain money and goods by extortion, theft, and force. Man, that other gang did this to us. That's wrong. Another, that other mob. And you're like, what are they doing? They're, they're just as bad. It could be that situation too. This is often the case where unbelievers find themselves, non-Christians. They don't recognize their own sinfulness before God, and they condemn evil all around them while thinking God must be okay with it, or they say he doesn't exist. And that's actually the second thing that the Israelites say that has is, that is worried the Lord. They're asking, where is the God of justice? They're questioning why it is that he is absent. He's supposed to be omnipresent and all-powerful and all-knowing. So where is this God? He must not exist. Regardless of what sort of group is making these simple accusations against God, they need someone to correct their thinking, not just their living. They need a messenger to come and preach to them to let them know that they have a radical misunderstanding of who God is, just like many people do today. And so in this first point, we see that there is a need for a just messenger to come and preach. Someone has to correct them. A righteous messenger needs to come and set the people straight. And may I help you with this problem that we see in Malachi, in this portion? One reason that God seems to delay in his dispensing of justice is that he is giving people time to repent and to believe. He's giving the evil people that are doing the evil things that we see, he's giving them time to come to him and repent. In Scripture, Peter tells us, he says that scoffers, people who are going to mock God in the last days, and they will say, where is this supposed coming of the Lord to judge the world, to deal with evil? You Christians have been saying this for a long time, that God is a God of justice. In the last days, people are going to mock it. They're going to mock you. Christ isn't coming again to judge. They overlook the fact, Peter says, they overlook the fact that God punished the world with a flood, with waters, and he promised never to do it again. But then he tells us elsewhere in Scripture that that judgment of the world by a flood points to a coming world judgment that is going to happen not by waters, but by fire. Peter explains that God is not slow to fulfill his promise to bring justice and judgment. It is, the problem is not the slowness or the absence of God. Instead, he's giving people time to repent and to come to him. That's what people are missing in their knowledge of God. 
It's not that he praises evil. It's not that he's impotent. It's not that he's unloving or that he doesn't exist. He's patient and he's gracious and he's merciful. So you can't forget those attributes of God and act like they don't exist and make an argument for God not existing. If you are not a believer, then he finally does come. And I'm sorry, if you are not a believer, when he finally does come, you will wish that he had been patient just a little bit longer. But no more time will be given. Your words will have finally exhausted God's patience to the end. And I plead with you that that's not coming from a righteous standpoint, a self-righteous standpoint where I'm right and you're wrong. It's coming from a heart of concern, trying to warn you that the judgment is coming. Justice is coming. God, God's delaying, not because he's dead, but because he cares and he's loving. But justice will eventually come. So please, while today exists, turn to the Lord and trust in him. Trust in Christ to save you. He sees your sin. He sees a rebellion against him. And he's not ignoring it. He's not praising it. He's being patient with you. You need to recognize God's goodness in being patient with you. That's what he's doing. And I was once taught that you can bring all your questions to God and that he's not afraid of them. How partially true that is, (laughs) that statement. You can bring all your questions to God and he's not afraid of them. I must say that God is not afraid of your questions. God is not afraid of your curiosities. But you might need to be afraid of the questions you ask God because questions of accusation against his revealed perfect nature, those are sinful and those will be judged. Genuine questions, understandable. Accusational questions, not tolerated. They weary God. Okay, So, Can you bring all your questions to God and he's not afraid of them? 100%. But you might want to be careful. Slowness to response to the problem of evil is not the same thing as absence or a failure to do what is right. These Israelites, they have no basis for accusing of God. Listen, they have no basis of accusing God of delighting in evil. They have no reason to believe that he had disappeared from the universe because they had a proven track record of God dispensing justice in being there. Their history told that story over and over again. So why would, why would they do this? It's just evilness in their heart. And we don't have any reason for those kinds of questions. Church, we got to allow God's message of Scripture to inform our thoughts if they're incomplete. So, so that eventually we'll have a better and a fuller understanding of God and who He is and what He's doing to fix this sinful and broken world. And so to recap our first point, we see that Israel needed not just a messenger to come and correct their sinful thinking to God, But we also continue to see that uh, Malachi, he's doing his part to be a messenger because that's that's what his name means. Malachi's name means messenger or angel. He's doing his part, but Israel needed something more. They needed more than Malachi. And so as we continue our next point this morning, we see that there is also, point two, we see that there's also the need for a just messenger to visit. We see the need for a just messenger to preach. Malachi's doing that, but we need something, we need more than Malachi, according to what we're about to read in Scripture. And so we see the need for a just messenger to come and visit. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says this Behold, I send my messenger. This is God talking through Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before who? Me. That's God talking. 
This messenger is going to come and prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is a personal visit. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You want justice? I'm coming. Remember with me that when we started Malachi, I explained that Malachi's name means messenger. In Hebrew, it's the word malach. It's hard to say for me, okay? I can barely roll my R's in Spanish. <laughs> malach. Hence, Malachi. Malach, Malachi in English. It's the exact same word for angel. An angel in Scripture is a messenger of God. So the word malach is often translated as angel or messenger, depending on, its act, on whether or not it's an actual angel that God sent or just a general human messenger which God sent. Okay? Whether it be for a king or for God, messengers are sent, but it's the same word. In Malachi, listen to this, because this, this might get a little, hopefully not too hairy, but Malachi is a prophet bringing a message. His name means messenger, angel. He's bringing a message to the people of God and to the priests. And prior to this, in the previous chapter, all right, the, Israel, uh, the Israelite priests, they are called messengers of God. And they, are, they have failed miserably. So God sends the prophet to let them know, the messenger, the prophet, to let them know the messenger, the priests, are supposed to be teaching God's word, have failed. Instead of preaching the right message, they're leading people away from God and, and into sin. They're supposed to be bringing life and peace Instead, they're bringing sin and death and judgment. They've preached for profit. And they have a bad example, led people away from God. But the messenger Malachi is telling them what God is is saying. He says, look, behold, God is going to send another messenger to prepare the way for God. Remember we sang the song, prepare you the way of the Lord? Okay, This this is where all these songs come together. Okay, Prepare the way before me. And scripture then goes on to say that God is actually a messenger himself, the messenger of the covenant. So really in verse 1, we see three messengers at work. Malachi giving a message about a messenger who's going to come to prepare the way for this messenger of the covenant. You see the three different messengers there? Okay. And this messenger is going to come to the temple suddenly. What a fascinating passage. I have to tell you that this, this little book of Malachi, this little prophecy, it's filled with so much goodness. It's filled with so much wonder and grace and warning of judgment to come, which is actually an act of grace as well. To tell someone that danger is coming, isn't that a kind thing? It is. But it's always, all this is always centered around Christ, always centered around Jesus. We've seen in our previous point that the people need a just messenger to come and correct their thinking. And indeed, Malachi has been trying to do this. But he's not the messenger that's mentioned in the first part of verse 1. God is telling Malachi to tell Israel that God is going to send another messenger. What's this other messenger going to do? He's going to prepare the way for God to come. In, now, in these times, back in Malachi's times, in ancient Eastern times, the custom, the custom of Eastern kings would be this. If they were going to visit somewhere, they would send messengers ahead of them to prepare the path for them. They would, on the road, if there was dips, they would fill them in. If there were rocks, they would remove them, okay? If it was tree branches, they would clear the way. They would remove anything in the road that might prevent the people from receiving their king, okay? Again, rocks and bumps, all flattened, valleys raised, hills brought down. 
If there were potholes, it'd be filled in just like the city workers do around Hesperia. What a wonderful job. What? <laughs> right? Filling in potholes. The imagery, who said Shah? <laughs> All right. The imagery that God is trying to paint for Israel is that this first messenger is preparing the way for someone of majesty. You get that? That he's a messenger preparing the way for someone that is a king. Clearly, God is in view. God is coming. The first messenger will prepare the way for God to arrive. Who is this first messenger? Who is this first messenger? Don't, don't say out loud. My question is, is he yet to come for all of us? Meaning, are we still waiting for this first messenger? Or has he already come between today and when Israel was told this? Well, if you fast forward to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we'll talk about more later when we get to this point in the passage. But if you fast forward to Malachi 4, 5, God says that he's going to send Elijah the prophet, Elijah the messenger to Israel. Okay, so from Israel's perspective, if you're back in Israel's time, this is yet to come, future for them. The question is, is it still to come for us? Or did God send Elijah the prophet to Israel? All right, well, to get to the point, we're going to jump forward to Matthew chapter 11. And I put these scriptures up on the screen, at least the references, so that you can look at them later. In Matthew 11, verses 13 through 15, listen to this. Jesus is speaking. Okay, Jesus, God in the flesh. He directly connects John the Baptist to Elijah, who was to come. There's a prophet that's coming, Malachi says. Jesus says, John the Baptist is the Elijah that Malachi was talking about. Okay? He's the messenger that would prepare the way for the Lord. Again, we'll talk about more about Elijah or John the Baptist in the future. But Mark 1, Mark 1 starts off with a bang. It says that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of God's promise to send somebody who'd prepare the way for the Lord. Isaiah the prophet, speaking for God, he says, listen to this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So by Jesus' own words, John the Baptist is Elijah, who preached a message to prepare the people to receive the Lord. Mark tells us that Isaiah promised one who do the same, and this one by Jesus' own words is John the Baptist. uh, Malachi 3 and 4 and Isaiah 40, they're all pointing to the same messenger who was to come, but now we see he has come. This is not something we are waiting for. This person was John the Baptist. Now, the question is, how did John prepare the way for the Lord? How did John clear the streets and the pathways so that Jesus could arrive? He did so by preaching repentance. Turn from your sin and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He called Israel to turn away from their rebellion to God. Israel's sins were the rocks and the bumps and the potholes that needed to be removed in order to properly welcome the coming king. How do you welcome a holy king with holy lives? That is what a king is worthy of, a holy king. Malachi then says that God is coming, okay? And he's the one whom Israel seeks. Now, if you've been going through Malachi with us, you're like, it doesn't seem like they're seeking him. They're they're just being outright disrespectful to God. So this this could be said sarcastically, 
Right? It sure doesn't look like Israel's been seeking God based on all of God's complaints with Israel. Or, or it could be said in the sense that Israel has been longing, expecting their Messiah to come. Israel, when they expected their Messiah to come, they expected him to come in and bring justice and righteousness. Okay? And so I favor the second view because of what's about to be said, that they were expecting the Messiah. They'd been longing for the Messiah to come. Where was God coming to? Where was God going to show up according to Malachi? Scripture says to his temple, to the temple. And remember that this is the second temple that was rebuilt. The first one had been destroyed by the Babylonians. This is the second one that's been rebuilt after they've come out of exile. Question, who does the temple belong to? He's going to come to where? His temple. Okay? It's his. He owns it. It was his home on earth. That's what the temple was. God's home on earth. The temple is where God's manifest presence was displayed amidst the people of God. Now, ever since the first destruction or the destruction of the first temple, you don't see the presence of God displayed like we did before. We don't see visitations of God in that second temple. We have not seen the display of power and the presence and the visibility in the second tower, uh, second temple. The Ark of the Covenant is even gone, and it's not there. Things were a little different. So the second temple seemed to be a little insufficient based on the Israelite perspective. But here we're told that God is coming to his temple. Wow. Our king is coming. His presence is finally going to visit them. That would be good news except for the fact that there's all sorts of bumps in the roads and stones and valleys. And we've been discussing those sin issues that we started with in Malachi. The road is littered with debris, obstacles that will prevent them from receiving the Lord properly. So John the Baptist was sent to Israel to preach to the people that they needed to repent of their sins and be baptized before the Lord for the forgiveness of sins. In this way, John the Baptist prepared the people to receive the Lord in his temple. Yet God is coming to fix what is wrong as well concerning the priests. We'll see that in our next passage, next sermon. God is going to come and deal with the priests. For now we see that God is coming, and there's a messenger that is going to prepare the way for God. Malachi then says that God is, uh, who is coming, he says he's also the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. You've been longing for him. You delight in him. God is coming. The messenger of the covenant is coming. The one who is coming is God. The one who they've been waiting for is the Messiah. The one in whom they delight is also the messenger of the covenant. One and the same. They're not, it's not God is coming and then there's also another messenger of the covenant. God is the messenger of the covenant who John the Baptist is preparing the way for. I'm not sure if you see the parallels. There's the phrase, the Lord is coming and the messenger of the covenant is coming. That's one and the same person. Israel seeks the Lord. The parallel is that Israel delights in the Lord, in their Messiah. They love their Messiah. They're waiting for him. God is coming, church. They're all one and the same person. John the Baptist was there to be the preparer of, of, of the road for God to come. God in the flesh, the Messiah, the one whom Israel longed for and delighted in. Of course, they did have false understandings of the Messiah. And what, and what he would do. They thought he was going to be a geopolitical deliverer. 
That he's going to free us as a country so that we're not bound to the Persians or we're not bound under the, the rule of the Babylonians or we're not uh, tormented by the Assyrians. And we're, ugh, before that, we're not tormented by the Egyptians. And man, we've always been harassed by people. When's our Messiah going to come and finally set us free and put us on the top of this planet as the chosen nation of God? That, that's what they wanted. Justice in that sense. They, they wanted a president that they thought was going to fix everything. Nevertheless, they, they longed for him and waited for him. And here in Malachi, we see that God himself is coming. He's the messenger of the covenant. He's coming to the temple to fix all that the priests polluted and the Israel polluted. So in one sense, listen to this, the messenger of the covenant who is God, in one sense, he's coming to fix the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, perhaps the covenant of Levi that we talked about. You can go back and listen to those sermons. He's coming. To fix that. You aren't being proper priests. You aren't offering proper sacrifices. You've ruined it. You're not being holy. So the messenger is coming to correct that. God himself, he's coming. But the New Testament also tells us that John was the messenger preparing the way for this messenger of the covenant, right, that was to come. And in the New Testament, we see that the one he's preparing the way for was Jesus, God in the flesh, okay? God in the flesh, Jesus, who is also the messenger of the new covenant. And so this is what the Lord of hosts, that phrase means Lord of angel armies. The Lord is the God over all the messengers that he's created. So we see another group of messengers mentioned here briefly. And this is what God is telling Israel. God is the commander in chief of everything. His angels, his armies, uh, Malachi, the priests, God is the supreme speaker in this world. And we all need to listen to him. He's speaking through Malachi, telling us that John is going to make the way for Jesus to come. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And so he sends John the Baptist, so they receive Jesus, so that through the initial conversion of the Jews, right, Jesus comes, many Jews believed after Jesus died and rose again, they become Christians. Through this initial conversion, Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, converts the Jews so that they can go bring conversion to the nations, you and I, people who are not Jewish. So that when Christ comes again, the road is cleared completely for him in our hearts. Sin is removed completely by his forgiveness, his death and resurrection, by him giving us his spirit to make us holy so that we can properly receive the king who is coming So the road needs paving twice, once for each visit of Jesus. How fitting, how relevant for every person that's ever lived. Sins need to be removed from us so that we may properly receive the king and welcome Jesus. He's coming again, just like he did the first time. Historically, it's verifiable. If we're unable to welcome Jesus into this world, it means that our sin remains and our lives, have not been, uh, our lives have not had the sin removed from us that we need to have removed through trust in his death and resurrection. When you put faith in Christ to save you, Scripture says not only does he take his, your sin away, but he grants you his perfection. He grants you his righteousness so that God looks at you and declares you perfect even though you're a sinner. He declares you perfect on the basis of Jesus just like God treated Jesus as a sinner even though he was not. Punished in your place, we get rewarded in his place. The the road is clear. It's paved. It's smooth. It's not like the roads we have in our town. It's so much better. It's beautiful. Now, 
Days before Jesus' crucifixion, days before, he triumphantly entered Jerusalem on a donkey. You guys remember that triumphal entry? He was doing what kings did in their day as they royally entered a city. He is presenting himself as king of Israel. The way has been paved. As he's riding into town, the pathways were lined with people's cloaks, palm trees, leaves. The paths were being made straight for the arrival of their king, albeit short-lived, because eventually they would cry, crucify him. But John had done a pretty good job in preparing the way for the Messiah to be received by the people. But remember that, that he's going to the temple. According to Malachi, God would visit the temple. So right after his triumphal entry on the donkey, all right, the coats and the cloaks and the palm trees, leaves, he enters the temple. And in Jesus' day, the temple was in horrible and corrupt conditions, just like in Malachi's day. 400 years had passed between Malachi's message and Jesus' visit to the temple. Things had not improved. Malachi's word was not heeded. In Jesus' day, the temple was a place to make a profit. Sacrifices were a means to money for, for some people. And the house of the Lord, Jesus says, was turned into a den of thieves. God saw the evil in the flesh. So Jesus made a whip, and in righteous anger, he tossed everyone out, and he flipped over the money changers' tables. The purge of sin had begun. The king was coming. John prepared the way he got there, and Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do in the coming passage. But we see the purge of sin beginning with John's preaching. Now Jesus is beginning to purge the temple. And, then pur- and purging is coming for the priests as well. They'll get tackled in the next sermon. But God did what he said he would do way back in Malachi. It took 400 years. But God kept his word as he always does. And God far exceeds our expectations in regards to this. God's righteous presence was once again visible in the temple through Jesus' clearing. But man, did this enrage the priests. They hated God in the flesh. Malachi tells us that they did not love God. They despised his name. And then now they despise his visit and his presence. Like, I'm, I'm a little scared right now, like, if I'm in that condition. It took 400 years, but God did what he was going to do. A couple days later, after all this, they began to plot to kill Jesus. The messenger of the covenant that Malachi foretold of was coming and came. And Jesus gave them, through Jesus' teachings, I'll tell you what, he gave them a shellacking over and over again through his teachings, calling them out on their sin. God was visiting the temple, and that righteous message that they needed from a messenger was getting delivered to them. God was visiting his temple and his priests and setting them straight, and they were not having it, and they wanted him dead. As we continue to explore this visit from the messenger of the covenant, it seems that Malachi, it seems that Malachi is blurring the lines between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And, and it looks like they're both one and the same. And that's because the Old Testament prophets didn't have a full understanding of what the coming of Jesus would look like. To them, it just looked like one event where Messiah comes. Later, we see by the revealing of the New Testament that it was, it's actually two comings. The first one, a departure, and then a second coming. Okay? And they both kind of parallel each other. The Jews fully expected that when Messiah would come, that he would usher in justice and judgment, but they saw it as one event. Again, not two. For now, we see that the messenger of the covenant is in view as God himself comes to purify the Levites and the temple and the sacrificial system all and all that it was meant to portray, okay? He's going to fix what is broken in the old covenant. And the old covenant was there to point the way to Jesus' saving work. 
The priests were to stand as mediator between God and Israel. The sacrifices were there to represent a righteousness that the citizens of Israel could not bring. And therefore, that sacrifice was supposed to be the perfection and holy life that they bring. So something stands in its place. And then that something dies in its place. And that's a picture of Jesus who is righteous for us and then dies in our place. Because we cannot be righteous enough to earn God's favor. Therefore, he presents himself as our righteousness, dies in our place, and takes our punishment. Okay? And then he... And he rises again from the dead. And scripture says that and shows us that over and over again, Israel's sacrificial system and priesthood and temple, all that was there to point to Christ. So Christ is coming to fix it. How? Check this out. Jesus is our great high priest. You, you high priest don't want to do your job? It's time for me to step in and do what you're supposed to do. I am the great high priest. Jesus is perfect and now the perfect messenger. And he speaks to us as he speaks to Israel. He speaks... What the priests in Malachi's day failed to do, and the priests in Jesus' day failed to do. He speaks truth that would lead people away from sin and to God. Jesus is of, is of a superior priesthood, and he was the reality that their office pointed to. Jesus arrives on scene as the superior king from David's lineage, the one whom the Israelites longed for and the world was to receive. Jesus purifies not just the physical temple that was in Jerusalem. Because that had to be purified too. But do you understand that Jesus purifies his church who was called the temple of God? Where did God live on earth when he visited? It was the temple. Scripture calls the church the temple of God. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Spirit? Where does God live? Here. Do you know that God is here now? Are you ever aware that when we gather together as the temple of God, that God is with us? Or... Or do we just come to do church activities and to hear music that we might think is fun or to hear a speaker that you might think is entertaining or to catch up with your friends? This is not a social event. This is the living God dwelling amongst his people. Do you, I'm not asking, do you get a tickle in your stomach or do you get tingly or you know, chills up your spine that God is here? Are you aware, although you cannot see him, are you aware that God lives in us collectively? That he is the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and we are stones being built together as a living temple. God has purified you by his blood, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He offered up his own lifeblood, his sacrifice, and this temple is cleansed completely, although it doesn't look like it. The spirit of Christ dwells in us. Only after, though, he's cleansed it and purified it by his own life. So he's the perfect priest. He's the perfect sacrifice, making the perfect temple completely pure. Jesus fulfills the old covenant completely, and thus he ushers in the new covenant, which we are all in if we are Christians. There is none other in Scripture that qualifies as the messenger of the covenant, none other than Jesus Christ. And church, this is what God's word, God's ultimate message is about Jesus Christ. It's about preparing us so that we may properly receive him on his next visit. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. Jesus is the messenger of this new covenant. Jesus, listen, is the angel of this covenant because messenger means angel, okay? If you do an Old Testament study on the angel of the Lord, on the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but if you do a study on the, in the Old Testament on the angel of the Lord, you'll see that this is the pre-incarnate son of God. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus before he took on flesh. So before Jesus took on flesh... He was the angel or the messenger of the Lord. Do you see that? 
And so this messenger of the covenant, this promise, this promise bringer, it's truly the angel or the messenger of God. It is God himself. Jesus came preaching a message regarding himself. And we are to receive him as king only when we're properly cleansed. When all the sins and the corruptions and the evils have been removed from us, then we may receive the Lord. And they're not removed by outward conformity, but by spiritual cleansing through what God does through his son's death and resurrection. This temple must be holy for God to dwell in and visit. And that cleansing happens because of Jesus who died and rose again for us. Jesus dwelling in the midst of his people, his temple. Remember that in Malachi, God preferred that the doors of the temple be shut instead of offering nasty, polluted sacrifices, which desecrated his home. So too, God will not dwell in a sinful church, a sinful temple, but again, through faith in Christ, and through his faith and confidence in his death and resurrection, our sin is removed so that God has a suitable dwelling place among his people. And so just as the Old Testament was uh, old temp, uh, the Old Testament temple was cleansed in Jesus' day. So too, the New Testament temple is cleansed. He cleanses us and he makes his home among us. Church, Jesus is here. God is among us even now. And in this new covenant, he promises a cleansing that's forever. A union that's forever. Union with him. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Christ and bride are forever one. And we are cleansed, and we are spotless, and we are without blemish because of what he alone has done for us. As this cleansed temple of Christ, we are, not, we are not a dwelling place stuck in one location. We are free to move about like the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That means God's presence is wherever his people are. God's presence is wherever his people are. And knowing that we have the privilege to take Christ to the nations, we should do that. We should take God's presence to visit sinners. His temple is worldwide, not just in Jerusalem like Jesus' day. We are his body on earth. Let's make sure that we do what we were created and saved to do, which is to visibly display the glory of God. Let's imitate him and let's shine like him. For this purpose, Christ died and rose again. And let me state again, if you're not a believer in Christ, God has spoken to you today. Not me. Heed his message. Your sin must be removed for you to receive God. This is done by trusting that Jesus can save you. And that he alone is perfect and lived a perfect life you cannot do. That he died in your place so that you would not have to die and suffer God's wrath. That he rose again so that you could have eternal life. Not in heaven, but with God. Heaven is not the great reward of salvation. God is. You are reconciled to God, and that's what makes heaven so great. God didn't save you to bring you to a place. He saved you to bring you to him. He is our great reward. And so trust him so that you receive his righteousness so that you can be reconciled to God. That is his promise. If you call upon the name of the Lord, he will save you. That is the covenant and contract that God will not break with those who come to Jesus. So turn from your sin and trust him to save you today. Church, I pray that you were confronted with the living Christ today who dwells in his people. Let's pray.